Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome everybody. Alexander Trouthgoik is joining us from the University of Wollongong and he's going to be talking about some of the work that he's been doing as a doctoral student down in Wollongong with his collaborators on China's social credit system. Alex, welcome. Good to see you and look forward to listening to what you have to say. Perfect. Yeah, sincere thanks Ian for uh, getting me up here past the rain as it were. And beautiful campus here at Nathan Campus. Does it rival Wollongong? I'm not sure, but you're getting close. You're getting close. And so, yeah, it's a really great pleasure to be up here presenting on current research that I've been conducting with my dear friend and colleague, uh, Chun Chung Liu. Now, I cannot take credit and mind the pun for the brilliant title for this paper, Black or Fifty Shades of Grey, The Power and Limits of the Social Credit Blacklist System in China. Chun Chung, if you've read any of his other papers, he's quite prolific in this field and, yeah, just quite a prolific author in general, but he comes up with brilliant pop culture reference titles, so I cannot take credit for that one. The agenda for today, I'm going to introduce you to the social credit system or what I like to refer to as the social credit system project and do some myth busting, some busting of the biggest myths that were really promulgated after there was an explosion of interest into the social credit system around 2018, 2019 by foreign media. And so this is a really good opportunity to do some myth busting because particularly in the past two or so years, there's been quite significant changes after the period for the initial development and experimentation period designated by the State Council came to an end in 2020. We'll then turn to the national level social credit system, have a bit of a discussion about the purpose, targets and functions, look at how blacklisted individuals are portrayed in state media and you'll get introduced to this Lao Lai character and... After that point, we'll turn to define what Chun Chung and I advance as relational punishment. So we build from a concept called relational repression that was advanced by Dengan O'Brien in 2013. So we use relational punishment as kind of the theoretical lens to understand how citizens in China are both participating in and almost serve as the mutual enforcer of the logic of the social credit system. I'll briefly introduce the mixed methods methodology and then turn to the findings where we illustrate the power of the blacklist system, the mechanisms of relational punishment we've identified, and the limits of the system as well. So again, as I mentioned, 2018-2019, we saw a real explosion in foreign media depictions of the social credit system, and it's interesting because in 2019 is when I started my PhD. I know anecdotes count for little in academia, but what's really been fascinating and somewhat eerie is that in conversations I've had with friends or family members or just common acquaintances, when I've mentioned, oh, I'm studying the social credit system or when I mention I'm studying surveillance in China, there were three words that will be said in all of these conversations, either Black Mirror, Orwellian or 1984. In pretty much all of them, I kid you not, obviously anecdotally speaking, but one of those three words would be uttered. And I think that what that really clearly illustrates is the power that popularised narrative wields in our construction of social reality as well as the social reality being lived by people in a different country, in this case in China. And as we'll be introduced to in this slides, there are very different narratives circulating in China about what the social credit system is and is not and what it should and should not do. And furthermore, debate and discussion is ongoing. There's tension between, for example, the National Development and Reform Commission and the People's Bank of China. There's tension between central level authorities and local governments in terms of what the social credit system is and should be doing. 
So a brief overview of the project. In the late 1990s, we had this gentleman, Lin uh, Drunier, sometimes described as the father of social credit, propose the creation of a credit system modelled on Western credit reporting frameworks, but expanded and adjusted for the Chinese context. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of the infrastructure that was proposed in this seminal paper by Lin Drunier in the late 1990s, the use of the construction of master databases, enhancing interministerial data sharing, and also the use of a joint rewards and punishment mechanism are actually witnessed in the social credit system today. Lin Drunier is also still prominent in this field. He's often quoted in state media in relation to the construction of the social credit system. But it was really in 2014 that we saw the first initial planning outline for the construction of the social credit system released by the state council. So the state council essentially encouraged commercial actors such as Ant Group, but also local governments and state agencies to go out and start experimenting with creating blacklists and red lists, experimenting with creating scoring and rating mechanisms to solve regulatory issues within their respective jurisdictions. And what this led to was a lot of experimentation. For those of you that are familiar with the China studies field and the way that uh, policy making is conducted in China, this is something that's dubbed by Sebastian Heilman as experimentation under hierarchy. Or if you were to use one of Deng Xiaoping's famous adages, which means to cross the river by groping for stepping stones, right? And so there was wide-scale experimentation, and what that led to was, in reality, a multi-dimensional, multi-layered, and fragmented project. So you can think of the social credit system project as a kind of overarching policy framework that encourages different actors to design and create their own systems. So this is sometimes referred to as an ecosystem by Roger Kremers, as a system of systems, and as an overarching blueprint or policy framework. And so I follow in the footsteps of Shin Dai, who advanced this notion of a social credit system project. So now let's turn to some common myths. The first myth is that each citizen in China is delegated a score that determines the scope of their opportunities in society. Now there are credit files kept about individuals at a national level, but they're not connected to some overarching score that dictates the scope of opportunities or restrictions that an individual might receive. And as a whole, the project makes more use of blacklists and red lists over quantified scoring and rating of behaviour. Quantified scoring and rating of behaviour really has been developed by uh, commercial actors such as Ant Group and the design of their commercial social credit systems targeting consumers such as Sesame Credit, which is one of the most popular social credit systems that a large, large subset of the Chinese population is using, but they function more like loyalty reward programs. The other actor that has been experimenting a lot with quantified scoring and rating has been local governments. We had a lot of experimentation, but what's happened is that after this initial experimentation period ended in 2020, there was concern that these local systems were overstepping the behaviours that they should be targeting, targeting not just issues of a financial nature and issues that are established in existing laws and regulations, but also targeting broader issues of social etiquette, right? Broader issues often targeting bu wenming ren or uncivilised people, this idea of people maybe 
that have come from the countryside that now reside in cities that lack poor social etiquette, that are not aware of etiquette such as jaywalking or cutting in line. These kinds of things were sometimes targeted. And what that led to was this gentleman that you see pictured before you, Lian Wei Liang, announcing in 2019 that these personal credit scores can no longer be used as a punishment and only as a reward incentive. So now, at the local level, municipal government credit scores, you cannot be punished for having a low score. And, and there's been researchers that have done work in model demonstration cities, illustrating that the minority of people in the area with a low score have committed some kind of major felony. So they've broken an existing law that haven't been punished for some kind of arbitrary regulation that the local government came up with. And as I mentioned in 2020, we then had the State Council reassert that definitions of untrustworthy behaviour must adhere to established laws and regulations. And you can see here mentions of target groups across documents. This was conducted by researchers at the Merricks Institute, sourcing documents from State Council and Credit China depositories. Again, this is a project that's primarily targeting companies, but also this is something that's often overlooked within the English academic literature is the focus on government entities. I wrote a paper with Alsma Bernot on this very issue, looking at how the social credit system ties in with broader reforms of the government bureaucracy and enhancing the central authorities' oversight of local governments. And Chunchong, who I'm writing this paper with, has also done field work in a model demonstration city, and he's also done another extensive survey that revealed that support for the social credit system is actually greater for members of the general public than for members of the party. And you might think, well, why would that be? Well, on one hand, the local governments are responsible for obviously carrying out the instructions and edicts that they've been given in terms of developing these systems, so they've got a lot of work to do, but also they're actually under more surveillance and more pressure from the social credit system at this stage than members of the general public. And yeah, as you can see then, around 10.3% mentions of individuals across these documents. The second big myth is around the use of advanced technologies. I'm thinking now of things like AI, machine learning and facial recognition technology. Decisions, as I mentioned, are being made by humans on the basis of past conduct. So if you break an existing law and regulation, then you may be blacklisted, for example. The thing that is often portrayed in foreign media depictions is the use of video surveillance systems as somehow like this imaginary of an integrated system that pulls information from integrated and connected video surveillance systems equipped with facial recognition technology that then feed back to master databases and then you have an AI that's sorting through all this data and delegating scores, which is not the case. There was some evidence in some locations such as Shenzhen and Suzhou that governments were using video surveillance systems to target these kinds of uncivilised behaviours, but I have not seen any evidence that these technologies are used in a substantial integrated manner as part of the social credit system on a nationwide basis. Although that is not to say that, for example, we know that in Xinjiang some of the state's more coercive surveillance initiatives do make use of ethnic profiling, do make use of video surveillance systems. And some scholars argue that the plan is to end up, even if it's not the case today, that eventually the plan is to use things like blockchain and 
AI for real-time data analysis and scoring of individuals. But I'm not too convinced of these claims because we've seen in national development plans that are discussing the development of advanced technology, the social credit system might be referred to, but it's referred to very vaguely. And I haven't seen anywhere specified that these technologies will specifically be used for scoring purposes. And we've also seen in November 2021, China joined the 192 other members of UNESCO to pledge to ban the use of AI in social scoring systems. And this is reflected in domestic legislation, Article 41 of the Administrative Penalties Law revised in January 2021, insists that digitally collected evidence requires human evaluation and administrative penalties are the primary way that punishments are sanctioned under the social credit system project. So for me, this indicates that automation likely remains off the near-term agenda and that if we do see AI and, and some of these different advanced technologies used in the social credit system, I'm not convinced that they'll be used specifically for the scoring of individual behaviour. Again, now turning to blacklists, you can see that we are talking about a minority of companies, government entities and individuals in China that negatively impacted by the blacklisting system. 1% to 2% of total companies annually, under 0.1% of government entities and around 015 to 0.3% of total citizens annually. Blacklists, uh, we're talking about a catch-all term for thousands of different list authorities have now created to penalise those in violation of regulations. So blacklist, this isn't a new tool of governance. It's witnessed overseas. It's been used in China for at least two decades now by different agencies, by banks. But under the social credit system, Lin Junyue proposed that the blacklist be consolidated and now blacklists under the social credit system have become a really prominent regulatory mechanism in China. So new offences, again, are not created through the blacklisting system, but one is added to the blacklist for violating existing regulations or breaking the law. So the corporate side of this system is more developed, as was illustrated in the preceding slides, and there's blacklists that have been created for polluters, companies that fail to pay wages, social insurance fraudsters, and many more. And less developed are blacklists that target individuals, Blacklist for people that default on court order judgments, tax evaders, phone scammers, and many among other transgressions. Now, the biggest blacklist and the one that has been proven or it has been argued to be most effective is the Shusin Bei Adrusin Renmin or the discredited subject under enforcement list, which was created by the Supreme People's Court in 2013. And it is primarily targeting people who default on their court order judgments. They've been ordered to pay a fee or they have an outstanding debt. They are taken to court. They don't show up at court or they refuse to pay their court fees, yet they have the resources to do so, then they are going to be added to a blacklist. And so there's a connection between the blacklisting of companies and the blacklisting of individuals. If a company has been blacklisted under, for example, the court defaulters blacklist, then the legal representative of that company will also then be blacklisted. Now, there's also blacklists for breaking regulations on public transport, on trains, and also on aeroplanes. And these come under the no-ride and no-fly lists. And so if you do something egregious, such as break into the cockpit of uh, an aeroplane, or if you're on a train and you get into a quarrel with staff, or a big contentious issue in China in recent years has been people stealing other people's seats, so-called train tyrants, on really packed 
high-speed trains that someone steals someone's seat and even when they're approached by an official to move, they refuse to move, right? This has been captured on social media and shared extensively and actually there's a substantial portion of netizens in China that believe such acts, such uncivilised behaviour should be the subject of blacklisting. And you can search for individuals that are blacklisted or redlisted. Redlisted, I won't go into too much detail in this presentation, but it's the opposite of the blacklisting system. If you are a company that is abiding by regulations, then you will receive preferential treatment by the government, perhaps reduced inspections by government officials, enhanced government procurement opportunities, and etc. And you can search for trustworthy, untrustworthy individuals or businesses on the Credit China platform, which is the national website for the social credit system. This is the indication of or a representation of the joint reward and sanction mechanism. So one of the things that makes the social credit system unique in my eyes is this underlying joint reward and sanction mechanism where essentially what's happened is that ministries at the central governmental level but also some commercial actors have signed memorandums of understanding with one another that essentially say if you add your target to a blacklist then I will add that same target to my blacklist. So what happens is it really, and this is where legal scholars have critiqued the social credit system because it breaks with this legal principle of just desserts and there's been critique of this around the idea of proportionality. So to say in this instance we have the Supreme People's Court, they add a court defaulter to their blacklist this information is shared with the master database, the National Credit Information Sharing Platform, and it's distributed to all the other ministries that have signed that memorandum of understanding with the People's Bank, and all of those ministries then add the target to their blacklist, and then they jointly punish the target. So what you're met with is a cascade of punishments if we take the opposite example, if we think about the red list system, you will be granted a cascade of privileges and rewards that these respective organisations and governments can grant you within their respective jurisdictions. So it's this joint reward and sanction mechanism that leads to these stories of individuals being barred from flying, being barred from catching the high-speed rail, being barred from purchasing luxury goods and items as well. Because the idea is... If you have the money and the resources to repay society and repay what is owed and you don't, then you're going to be restricted from what everyone else is allowed to do until you make good on those promises. And this is an example where in central government documents talking about being blacklisted, it is specified that if you're blacklisted, the, the person in question needs to be notified. And yet there is propaganda that illustrates, as you'll see through this example, that illustrates that in a lot of cases, blacklisted actors don't actually know that they've been blacklisted. So I can't fly, can't secure government uh, procurement opportunities, can't stay in hotels. So the lady in the end saying that you've essentially lost your reputation and what's interesting about this, I mean firstly you've got to hand it to this guy, he's very ambitious, he's obviously trying to do a lot of things, but the second thing is that it's not always evident, even though there's 
policy document specifying that blacklisted actors need to be informed. When they go and do something that they're restricted from doing, often it's only then that they become aware that they've been blacklisted. And now we turn to depictions of individuals that are targeted by the blacklisting system, often referred to as lao lai. So lao lai, this is a derogatory term for individuals that have the money and resources to pay back what is owed and yet they refuse to do so. And as you can see here in these state media depictions, they're often portrayed as bosses, business executives, high-end employees of business who have the money and resources. You can see they're portrayed as fat and greedy that have the money and resources to pay back what is owed, and yet they refuse to do so. You can see here that because they refuse to do so, there is efforts to name and shame individuals. However, the main idea is that these individuals are inherently morally reprehensible and unless there is external action taken to restrain them, they're just going to go on squandering money, deceiving people and committing further fraud and therefore necessitates that the hand of the law comes in and essentially wrings out the money that is owed, as you can see from this central image here. Here are some examples of shaming initiatives that were conducted in this initial developmental period. We had blacklisted actors publicly displayed on local courts. We had, prior to the screening of this blockbuster movie, The Avengers Endgame, a lot of cinemas throughout local cities were naming and shaming blacklisting actors along with this overarching idea of the idea that if you break trust in one place, then you're going to be restricted from doing a lot of different things. There was also collaboration between tech companies and local governments, the creation of this app in Herbay, uh, the Deadbeat Map app, that's available through WeChat, and it pinpoints the location of people who have failed to their debt within a 500-metre radius of the individual. Also collaboration in some other areas where there was a special ringtone that was developed. If you get a call from a number linked to a court defaulter, then you'll be warned that, hey, the person you're dealing with is a low lie, essentially. So now, after looking at some of these different naming and shaming initiatives, I wanted to define relational punishment, which is the overarching theoretical take that Chun Chung and I advance in our paper. So we know that punishment from the state can rely on formal state apparatuses, but also the targeting or mobilisation of the deviant's own social connections, such as family members or friends for informal discipline to enhance the power of social control. And building from the work of Dungan O'Brien, who advanced this idea of relational repression, we developed this concept of relational punishment. Now, there's two kinds of relational punishment. The first kind involves formal punishments from the state that applies not only to the deviant in question, but also their social relations. And this has previously been coined collective punishment. If we were to think of an example of Stalin's Russia, between the 1920s and the 1940s, we had Stalin target enemies of the state, but also their wider kinship circles. Now, the second kind of relational punishment is punishment which mobilises the deviant social relations as a channel of punishment, often enacted through non-violent means, such as defamation, ridicule and stigma, to enforce conformity and social norms. And this idea has often been studied under the concept of informal control, broadly speaking. Another example from outside of China would be the Sex Offenders Registrar in the United States, which, again, is portraying individuals on the register as untrustworthy, 
and depriving them of their social capital, which can lead to their social ostracization. Now in China, we've seen both kinds of relational punishment in previous initiatives, particularly during the revolutionary era. Between 1930 and 1970s, we had individuals in China progressively given a class label and what was called Hei Lei, or the Black Five Kinds, such as counter-revolutionary or landlord. These Black Five Kinds were shamed, subject to public shaming, but also the punishment of their wider kinship circles was encouraged by the state, and also their broader ostracization by members of the public was also encouraged. So it's not as if the blacklisting system makes use of it's, I guess you could say it makes use of both kinds of relational punishment. And so for us... We were interested in exploring this idea of relational punishment in the context of the social credit system because we see both aspects. We see the collective punishment aspect where we see children of blacklisted individuals being barred from attending high-end private schools and we also see a co-option of social ties that are demonstrated through efforts by the state to name and shame blacklisted individuals and frame them as morally reprehensible. So we were asking how does the public actually interpret the punishments from the social credit blacklist system and how do members of the public participate in or resist the relational punishment of blacklisted actors? Briefly touching on our methodology, we were using a mixed methods embedded design with a qualitative research emphasis. So our survey data was supplementing the findings that were derived through interviews. So the qualitative component, I conducted 30 in-depth video interviews with individuals in China from November 2020 to late April 2021. And I was participating in an online language exchange community as part of my candidature when it was revealed that I wouldn't be able to get over to China to conduct meaningful fieldwork. I ended up being able to recruit individuals throughout China using this online language exchange community. And so the sample was purposefully diversified based on gender, location and age ranges and all participants were urban residents. And so even though it's a small sample, I think the geographic location was very important because as was discussed, local governments are designing their own respective systems and there's different levels of propaganda and education around the social credit system depending on where you're located in China. And a lot of existing studies that have looked at public perception and experience under the social credit system, they've had a very homogenous participant base. So often sampling from one university in Beijing or from one city district in Shandong, something along those lines. And this research was approved by the Human Research Ethics Committee at the University of Wollongong. The second was this online survey for mainland Chinese urban residents that was examining opinions on social credit system punishments that contained over a thousand samples. It used quota sampling based on education, age, gender and residential province and it produced a representative sample for urban residents. So again, we're focusing on urban residents in this study, acknowledging that there are differences between urban and rural residents when it comes to the use of relational punishment. And this survey was approved by the Institutional Review Board at UC San Diego. So turning now to some of our findings, we first start with what we characterise as the power of the blacklist system. What was striking was that all our interviewees are exposed to some information about blacklist restrictions, mostly through different forms of print or digital media. And this was striking because previous studies have observed that there's somewhat limited awareness of the social credit system, but past studies often haven't 
differentiated between the respective functions of the social credit system. So if you were to ask someone, what do you think about the social credit system, they might not initially know what you're talking about, but when you go in to discuss some of these blacklists, people being restricted from flying, from purchasing luxury goods and items, or if you talk about the commercial side of things like in-group sesame credit, then they have a much more comprehensive understanding. Now, close to a third revealed that they were personally acquainted with a blacklisted person, and all these cases revolve around issues of a monetary nature, such as failure to pay back loans, involvement in fraud, and skimping on employee wages. Now, some of these cases appear to be blacklisting by banks, which is different from the court defaulters blacklist. For example, I mentioned that blacklists have been used in China for a number of years now, most commonly by banks. And some of our participants were saying a friend or a family member, their business went under and they no longer had the resources to make good on debts that were owing or on court fees that were owing. Now, according to the Supreme People's Court, court defaulters blacklist documents, if you don't have the resources to make good on what you owe, then you shouldn't really be blacklisted. So I think this is also really important. Another big gap in the literature is how the state apparatus actually operates the blacklisting system, because it isn't immediately obvious how stringently these ideas are followed, like how the state ascertains whether someone has the resources to make good on what is owed or what is not is still somewhat uncertain. So some support for the blacklist punishments. Many people accepted the blacklist at face value, believing the judgment to signify moral bankruptcy and la lai are conceived as selfish and thus in need of external control. Now financial dishonesty is often conceived as the primary target of blacklisting but again citizens also seem to lump uncivilized behaviors such as encroachment on personal space, harming of public health or disruption of the social order generally under the banner of the blacklist through their interpretation of the state's moralizing agenda. And as was mentioned, that shouldn't be too surprising because in some local government areas, these uncivilized behaviors have actually been the target of blacklisting and these quantified scoring and rating systems. We turn now to our survey that illustrates there's really broad support for the major blacklists, the, the court defaulters blacklist and the no ride, no flyer blacklists. And there's greater support for the court defaulters blacklist but what's interesting is, again, one of these issues is targeting issues of a monetary nature, and the other issue is targeting regulatory issues on public transport, which individuals interviewed in this study classify as uncivilised behaviour. Among the different forms of formal punishment, physical restrictions to the mobility of blacklisted persons are perceived most harmful because of the inconvenience that's posed, and you can see that in Mr Leal's comments about his cousin's blacklisting. His cousin lives in Guangdong. His hometown is in Hebei, meaning that he now needs to take the uncomfortable, hard-seated train for more than 20 hours, which is just inconvenient and a waste of time. Disclosure of public personal information by the state is commonly conceived as necessary, or at least exposing the individual's information on a national credit website where people can find it is believed to be important because it will prevent further deception and financial harm. And collective punishments, such as the inability of blacklisted individuals' children attending private school, are conceived as powerful deterrents for untrustworthy behaviour by many people, which is seen there in Mrs Dong's comment. Oh, by the way, all of these individuals have been de-identified, so that's not Mrs. Dung's real name. And again, now we see some support for formal blacklist punishments taken from our survey. People in general are quite supportive of formal blacklist punishments. 
Now, the most supportive punishment item is disqualifying the individual as a civil servant candidate, followed by restrictions on travel and restriction on job promotion. Now, importantly, you can see that the most contentious issues are restriction on children's entry into private schools. So we speculate it seems that the more collective damage or social impact that the punishment item has, the less supportive people generally are. Mechanisms of relational punishment that we identified. So again, it's important to iterate that we have nine individuals that are acquainted with a blacklisting actor, but also we have another portion of individuals that are obviously operating in hypothetical mode, but we observed avoidance and ostracization to be a common strategy among our interviewees in response to the blacklisting of strangers. Blacklisting perceived to result in a loss of face for individuals thus labelled and alerts people to be on guard when in their company. Participants unacquainted with a blacklisted person widely acknowledged that a judgment would harm the relationship that they shared with someone. However, when we asked the same question for participants that did share a personal relationship, this often was not the case. Another strategy we looked at was financial termination, so less severe than outright ostracization, but the idea that the individual would be less inclined to talk about issues of a monetary nature with their friend or contact. And others insisted that withdrawal from a relationship in the event of a blacklisting was only warranted in business or professional contexts that involved money. And some indication of family members or friends pressuring the individual to conform to the judgment. However, as indicated by Mrs. Law's comment, they were really uncertain about how blacklisting judgments are actually rectified and failed to identify the relevant authorities or processes. And finally, the limits of the blacklist system. We found limits of shaming and controversial punishment. People did think that blacklists had a consequential impact on how people are socialised, but they don't think that it's somehow almighty. So although most people know various systems exist, many doubt that exposing the personal information of a blacklisted actual could actually penetrate and influence their social network in a meaningful way. So I probed Mr. Leo on whether what impact his cousin's blacklisting had had on his socialisation and family relationships, and... He didn't think that it had much of an impact. He's saying that, yeah, he's being uh, published on the news and he's being published online, but many people don't view or read such news. And your friends and colleagues around you generally may not know unless they're going to look for this information specifically. And living in a society of strangers in a city, no one that you're interacting with on a day-by-day -day basis knows that you've been blacklisted generally, so it doesn't have that much of an impact, he doesn't think. And also, as was demonstrated in the survey data that we have, that collective punishments barring blacklisted actors' children from attending private school was quite contentious. A lot of people connected this to this idea of the idea of during the feudal era, if a man or if a person commits a crime, then you've got to punish the whole clan, you punish the whole family. This idea was really viewed as unfair and outdated and that it harms the developmental prospects of individual people system errors. Again, some people are concerned about how blacklisting judgments are actually carried out or decided, and they're not perceived to consider extraneous circumstances such as honest failure or false accusation. And you can see Mrs. Ma provides a concrete example of how blacklists could be vulnerable to scapegoating. You have a company that's been classified or been blacklisted, and there's a boss that's responsible for a lot of these actions, but they scapegoat the legal representative. The legal representative ends up being blacklisted, which means that there's concern that the system doesn't take into concern contextual issues. 
And again, people's consideration of contextual and intentional factors behind the blacklisted status is relational. So it's more likely to happen for blacklisted actors I know. Strangers are typically labelled la lie and avoided, whereas known individuals are defended in reference to contextual details. So even for participants who strongly support formal punishments, they are less inclined to support, let alone participate in, relational punishment for those blacklisted people in their social network. So some final conclusions. Our findings show that the most consequential social credit system for individuals, blacklist systems and their punishments are well recognised and supported in society and we identify that citizens enforce the blacklisting classification through relational punishment and the mechanisms of ostracisation, financial termination and pressure to conform. However, this relational method of social control is definitely not without its limits. And at this stage, the impact of a blacklisting judgment on close interpersonal relationships appears negligible. Strangers are typically labelled lao lai, known individuals defended in reference to contextual details. So regardless of the strong symbolic power the state wields, classifications enforced by the state in China are always contested. So to the best of our knowledge, this is the first empirical paper elaborating on the power and limits of the social credit blacklist system. And we acknowledge this is only a really preliminary first step into understanding how the social credit system operates and how it actually impacts individuals in their day-to-day -day life. Some questions for future studies in particular, how blacklisted individuals navigate and experience the system. I hope to become acquainted with and, and conducting some future studies with blacklisted individuals to see how they navigate the experience of being blacklisted. But importantly, again, we're still quite ambiguous about how the state actually operates the blacklist system, so more research definitely needs to be done there. I'll just briefly comment preference falsification for those of you in the China studies field. Obviously, this is always an ongoing issue. How can we ensure the reliability of survey data? But the findings I presented to you are also corroborated by existing studies that have shown high levels of support for other social credit system functions and reported levels of behaviour change as well. So future sampling, as I mentioned, because this system is targeting business employees and government entities and officials to a greater extent than members of the general public, that future sampling should probably start to begin to target the former exclusively, although doing work in this space now is incredibly difficult. And our surveys were conducted with urban residents and we acknowledge social structures in rural areas differ profoundly in a manner that might fundamentally impact how relational punishment plays out. Thank you so much. That's all I have for you today. Apologies if I stepped over the time a little bit. Yeah, really looking forward to any feedback or comments everyone may have. Thank you so much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.